Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts, Dimitri and Etienne, and today we'll be interviewing Pierre Barbieux from Belgium, who's working on the project Bois de Rodebeau. And Pierre's going to be talking to us about the world of variety of alternative varieties and his work selecting these varieties and adapting them to his Belgian context. And it's really fascinating to see how, to see the amount of, of genetics and of tree varieties that are out there that we haven't heard about, and also to ha have an understanding of what it takes to find them, to bring them onto his land, and the process that he's going through to trial them to make sure that they're adapted. It's incredible the amount of knowledge he has uh, accumulated through experiments when he talks about different fig varieties um, or tree biomass production varieties. He goes into a lot of detail and it's great because you can really see that through practice and just a few years, you can get to a level of technical understanding that's really useful uh, in production. Along the interview, um... He's going to be talking a lot about Ernst Gotch and some of the techniques that are used by this person. So we thought it would be interesting to have a quick description of uh, some of the terms and definitions that are used. So Ernst Gotch is a, is a farmer and researcher in Brazil who's been, um, for the past 30 years, developing a system called Syntropic Agriculture, which you can find out um, online a lot about. But basically, there's two concepts that are worth defining. And the first one is called stratification, so tree stratification. And that's basically placing trees next to each other quite close according to their light requirements. So you often hear, you know, emergent strata, canopy strata, shrub or medium strata, etc. And this is just referring to how much light they require and how they can be placed um, relative to one another in order to optimize for the light conditions and the productivity of the land. The second term that needs to be understood is, is, is chop and drop. And this is a, uh, a very important technique in this entropic uh, system where there are biomass trees that are planted and that are regularly either coppiced or pollarded or heavily pruned in order to provide biomass. And they're also integrated quite intimately with the productive trees in order to, um, to not compete with them so much, but in order to really provide benefits in terms of the biomass pr uh, production, uh, carbon improvement, fertilization, and, um, and even so some things like floral induction by the, by the pruning, opening up light to the other trees. So it's an interesting technique, and Pierre is going to be talking a lot uh, um, a bit about it for us. So with this, um, we hope that um, you enjoy the interview. Hello, Pierre, and welcome on the podcast. Hello, guys. Pierre, it would be really awesome if we could um, get a bit of an idea of how you got into farming. Well, it's, um, it's kind of a long story. Um, obviously, uh, I don't come from a, from a farming uh, family or I don't come from a, an agriculture background or I didn't study uh, agriculture. Um, 
basically, uh, like everything I do, is uh, I learn uh, everything by uh, experimenting, doing, and uh, and observe and observing what I do. So uh, I majored in uh, in public relations in 1995, but I I, I was really bad at it. So uh, I knew I was not going to pursue a, a career in, in public relations. Um, mm. I've been I've been um, an, an entrepreneur for basically all my life. Uh, so that's a, that's what I like to do, and that's what I can do. Uh, a few years after school, uh, I started an, an internet company, and uh, it was quite successful. So um, we uh, sold it to uh, to an American uh, company, uh, TripAdvisor, to to name it, and um, and uh, it it allowed me to. Um, to have a bit of cash uh, to play with after that, and so uh, right after selling the the company, I invested in uh, in different projects. The first projects I invested in is uh, were restaurants in Brussels because I've always been uh, interested in uh, in food. I, I just love food and I just love to eat it, and and uh, so I spent basically ten years within the uh, restaurant business, but. Um, it was kind of, uh, it was quite stressful. It's a stressful uh, uh, business to be in. So I started to, to, to get, you know, to have health issues. You know, I had issues with some business partners and, and also the, the, the work is quite demanding. So uh, you work a, a lot of hours, very late. And, uh, and so uh, I, started to, I started to feel that, that some, something wasn't right. And uh, I needed to change uh, something to, uh, to to my lifestyle. So uh, um, that's when I started to get into nutrition and then to into agriculture. So the, the first thing I did is that I joined uh, a, um, a market a market gardener uh, cooperative in, in next to Brussels. A friend a friend of mine uh, gathered around twenty uh, market gardeners and. Uh, and uh, I was I, I was there to to help him for a couple of years, so, so that was really uh, that was really an interesting uh, experience because I w- I got to learn about the the really uh, small scale farming and all the uh, problems that those guys and, and those ladies would have when they uh, when they started a, a, a small or a small farm. So that was really uh, really interesting, and I stayed with them for uh, three years, but. Uh, I was not, you know, I was not paid for this. I was doing this on top of my uh, uh, restaurant mm. businesses. And then uh, after that, I, I discovered the work of uh, of Martin Profit, uh, who's created a food forest. And uh, I think it was uh, twenty five years ago. So uh, in the in the south of uh, in the southwest of uh, of the UK, if I remember well. And uh, I went to uh, to a training with him, and then I went back again. And I, I found it to be very interesting, but it, it didn't focus on uh, on production. So it's I think that food forests are awesome for for self uh, self sufficiency uh, for families or for small communities. But to uh, to make a living from it, it's it's quite difficult. And that's that's one of the things that Martin told us when uh, when we went to his training is that if you want to make a living out of it. A food forest is not the the perfect idea, and I remember at the time that he told me, uh, if you want to make it more simple, uh, do it in lines, not in three dimensions, because it's quite complicated mm. to uh, to organize and to set up. And so uh, after that, I came back and uh, 
And luckily, I found a, I found a video about uh, the work of Ernst Koch that we all know, right? And uh, mm -hmm. that was really interesting as well because he was focus focusing on uh, on production, and that's what I was really interested in. So uh, I, you know, I, I came back again from uh, uh, several trainings uh, in Barcelona in the south of France, and and luckily I got to uh, to uh, to, uh, to find a piece of land next to Brussels. Uh, it's really hard to find a piece of land in uh, in Belgium because the the pressure on land uh, on land is quite uh, it's quite it's quite heavy. You know, to find just uh, a few hectares, you have to fight against uh, uh, very rich people. Obviously, uh, people uh, in next to Brussels, you always compete with people who own horses. You know, they'd like to put mm -hmm. their horses on a couple of hectares, and so if you want to find a, a place to, you know where you can start a small a small farm business where you're going to compete with them so it means you you have to put a lot of money into uh, into it to, uh, to 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 have your piece of land and uh, but luckily um, I was able to find three hectares right next to Brussels and uh, and that was it so uh, since then I've been uh, I've been busy experimenting and uh, yeah so that's kind of a uh, the path that led me to uh, agriculture. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say first that uh, you're very humble because your English is very, very good. Yeah. Um, you know, you were making us uh, feel like it was going to be much worse than this, but it's very good. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's a bit rusty. You know, I've been, I've been, I've been a student in the U S and uh, I think it was in 1994 and 1995 and uh, it has to come back, but uh, it will. Yeah. It's it's perfect. Uh, you're explaining things very well. And so, um, could you tell us a bit more about what you're doing there at uh, Bois de Rodebeau? Am I saying it correctly? Yeah, it's like it's a mix of uh, of French and Flemish. Uh, Bois de Rodebeau yeah. is a uh, is a uh, is actually a city next to Brussels, where where I bought my piece piece of land. So Rodebeau means uh, uh, the wood from Rod, which is uh, which is the area. But uh, I had I had to find a name, so that's what I came up with. And uh, but well, at the moment it's it's an ongoing project, so I wouldn't say that it's uh, it's a, a project that is a, fi a final. Uh, I still uh, I still have a lot to experiment, so it's very experimental. And uh, my goal um, is uh, is to create a, a smarter fruit and herbs um, production system with a with a, a focus on several aspects. Um, Obviously, trees are, are going to play a major role in the system, uh, whether it's uh, for uh, producing fruits, herbs, or, or, or plants with uh, with medicinal compounds, uh, or for its role in the system. Uh, you know, as a support species, uh, that's what uh, that's what we learned with uh, Ernst Koch, the importance of uh, our specific uh, specific trees that will not produce fruits, but uh, actually will help will help the system to uh, to get better and better. Um, mm. The second, the second aspect uh, I would focus on is the uh, autonomy in biomass, and it's uh, it's something that really uh, excites me in a way, but also worries me because uh, I always ask myself the question if it's possible to uh, to to you know to make a, a system, a production system, profitable uh, without importing things from outside all the time. So that's kind of a mm. challenge. I. Um, we, we're learning more and more, but uh, we don't we don't have all the answers yet. But uh, I hope that we uh, we're going to find out if it's uh, really possible 
uh, in, in a way. Um, and the third aspect is to mix different uh, regenerative uh, techniques all together. So uh, obviously, I grow forestry because uh, that's what I've learned for the for the past three years. But also uh, playing with uh, cover crops and also uh, playing playing with fermentation and kind of mixing them all together and see uh, what they they can bring to each other. And um, and 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 last but not least, because it's kind of my uh, background. Uh, I've always been a geek, so I've, I've always been good at finding stuff online. So if if you ask me to, to find something, uh, I'm going to be able to find something that uh, you know that it's very hard for other people to find because I know how to to look for it. So uh, very useful skill. Yeah, and then uh, a few years ago, you know, I, I started to 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 uh, dig into the uh, the world of plants. Obviously, uh, I knew a bit of a species, right? Uh, I know the apples exist, you know, pears and, and cherries, but uh, also there, there's a lot more to it than, uh, you know, the conventional uh, fruits that we, uh, that we grow in, uh, in temperate climate. Um, and I started to look into the species, but, no, but also into the varieties inside the species. So, so um, my goal at the moment is to, um, to find and to add the best uh, species, obviously, but also the best varieties uh, that I've collected for the for the past few years. Uh, I, I think I started uh, four years ago, and um, my idea is to find which species and varieties are the best ones for uh, our temperate climate. Um, which one will cope uh, with climate change, obviously, and also the difference in, in temperature that we can have, because the climate, in a way, the average uh, temperature in, in Belgium hasn't really evolved in the in the last few years, but uh, but the, but the seasons and the different uh, uh, temperatures you can get are uh, really changing. It's like you get a lot more shocks than in the past. So it's to find species and, uh, and varieties that could uh, cope with those, uh, with those changes. So basically, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, few years. And, uh, and uh, we'll, we can also talk about the, uh, the nursery, but it's, uh, it's more of a side project than... Uh, you know, okay. And it's there to help the you know the business and and to make sure I I, I can make a a, de a decent amount of money to invest in the in, in the future of the project. Nice. I th I think it's also an important economic aspect as you're describing it. Um. But yeah, we'll we'll definitely want to delve deeper into a lot of the things you mentioned now. Um. But before that, do you think it would be possible to briefly explain to us a bit about your local? ecological uh, and soil context you know what what are you farming on and, and what's what's around you okay yeah well farmers uh, around say that we have a, a soil that uh, has a good potential so it's a it's a mix you know it's really my piece of land of course it, it can change from a, a, kilo, a kilometer away it, it can be very different but most of the soil around my uh, my piece of land is a uh, is a mix of loam and clay with a bit of sand, so it's quite it can get quite heavy in the in the in the winter in terms of water, but it has a potential to do really uh, really well. Um, in terms of climate, um, I'm located in between. Uh, it's kind of a it, it's kind of it, it's in between an o o oceanic uh, temperate climate and a continental uh, temperate climate. So I'm I'm in between both. Um, so we get. It's never really cold, but uh, it's colder than the seaside, but it's never really hot, but warmer than the seaside. So uh, 
It's uh, between a, a USDA zone of a 8A and AB, uh, 8B, according to the year. Um, and on, a, on one side of Ireland, we, uh, we are at the very end of Brussels. So I'm next to uh, very nice mansions and villas. And, uh, and on the other side, um, I'm, I'm surrounded by uh, conventional, conventional farming land. So uh, it's kind of a... It's kind of a weird setup to be in. It's like I'm in between two very uh, different worlds, if you will. Okay. Yeah. And what's uh, what's the what's the depth of the soil you're farming on? Well, <laughs> I've I've got no idea. I think it's pretty deep, but uh, uh, you know, I I, I we dig uh, quite a we've we've planted uh, around two thousand trees so far. So uh, and we did we did them all by hand. So we didn't use any uh, any machinery to do it. So uh, sometimes we went uh, up to uh, a meter deep, and it uh, and the soil stayed the same. So we didn't we, it didn't change. So I guess it's uh, it's good in a way, but uh, I cannot tell you because I didn't uh, dig any further. Okay, Pierre, you mentioned that you're choosing different varieties and trying to see which ones will respond well to climate change. Can you tell us a bit more about that process? Well, obviously, if you want to, uh, the, the, first th this, the first thing I, I, I look for, right, when I look for a species or a variety is first um, its ability uh, to produce very early because it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge in Belgium because we're not continental, right? And we're not... Uh, it's not like uh, we're next to the ocean where uh, the, the weather is quite mild. So we need to find varieties and species that can uh, ripen very early. So that would be, uh, that would be the first criteria. Um, and between the, the theory and reality, there's always a difference, right? Um, you can read a lot of stuff in, a, a, in forums or on Facebook from... Uh, from uh, you know fruit collectors and uh, and uh, but uh, you have to test them. So in theory, that's what I'm looking for first. And then obviously it's going to be a cold resistance because uh, we can get to minus uh, eight on the very bad years. But uh, usually it doesn't go uh, lower than uh, minus four or minus five. So uh, that would be the second criteria. It's called uh, resistance. But uh, we, we, our weather is still okay. So we can basically plant anything we want, except the, the ones that are really exotic. But, uh, uh, but it's changing because uh, every day we find new varieties and, and the weather is still changing and getting a, a bit warmer uh, year after year. Um, the third criteria, and, uh, and for me it's really important, is I need to find trees, and that's going to be especially important for the for the future uh, production uh, uh, piece of land that I'm uh, going to start uh, working on probably in, a, in two or three years, is um, its ability to be pruned. I, I find it always um, a challenge to learn about uh, how to prune fruit trees and uh, finding um, prunes that can react to, uh, to harsh pruning without uh, harming the tree is really important. So uh, I can take the example of fig trees, for example. Um, if you take a fig tree and you let it grow, um, you're going to have all the, all the fruits 
at the at the very top of the tree, right? And that's what you see in uh, in, uh, in in gardens. You see always the same pattern: is that people they plant uh, their fig tree, and then it's gonna get huge, and then you're gonna have all the fruits at the very top because it's the physiology of the tree to produce its fruits at the at the tip of uh, of the branches. But with very uh, simple techniques, you can keep it low, and you can increase the production by um, by pruning the tree correctly. So if you take a, you know the one-time cropper, the the fig trees that only produce uh, one fruit per year, uh, it's very simple because all you have to do after a few years, you need to get it uh, to have it settled first for the first. Uh, Three years, I would say, and then you can, you know, prune it back to uh, at the very bottom every year. So it's it's fantastic because it means that you can plant a lot more trees, and then you can increase your production. So um, easy to prune is would be my uh, my my third uh, criteria in terms of research, uh, in in terms of um, on, in terms of selection, and then um, the last one, uh, and it's probably going to be the same for any uh, uh, small farmer. Is uh, it's added value for for the the local market. Obviously, if you're small, you cannot compete with uh, with uh, apple or, or pear producers because they work on uh, on like uh, ten hectares or twenty hectares, and uh, that's all that's all they do. And uh, so you cannot compete with them. So you need to find uh, fruits and also varieties that are that uh, people cannot compare. Them to what they find in uh, in uh, in supermarkets. So uh, that would be my four criteria. Of course, there are others like its re- resistance to uh, to drought, which is becoming a, a problem. But uh, in a way, if you want to uh, to produce fruit, you need water. But uh, that's something we can talk about uh, later. That gives us a lot to talk about, and I'm sure we'll come back to the economic aspect a bit after. Going back to the fact that you're selecting for early fruit production, does that give you any additional problems with late frost, for example? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's pretty much the same for all fruit species. So it, it's not that it's a, a criteria that uh, that I'm going to be uh, worried about because it's already it's already a problem for for all fruit species. Maybe less for 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 some than others, but uh, but uh, obviously. Well, that it's it's hard to uh, to find species of varieties that are, that are gonna flower right after the right after the late frost, right in in April or May, and then that are gonna ripen early enough. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's something I we, I need to focus more on. But um, uh, I think there are, there are already uh, species that can cope better than others uh, with late frost and. Um, Obviously, I'm also trying to. Uh, I'm also looking for techniques to uh, to make sure that uh, the flowers do not uh, do not burn during the or the uh, the young shoots do not burn during the the, the late frost in April and May. But uh, that's that's probably gonna be uh, probably gonna be one of the you know most uh, difficult challenge to. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't have all the solutions right now, but uh, I hope uh, some of you listeners can uh, can help and you know, fixing the, <laughs> or, or finding the, the right strategies. Uh, I know I have a few ideas, but uh, it, needs to, uh, it needs to be worked on a, a bit more. Um, so, Pierre, um, 
when we look at your at your facebook page there's a you it seems that you've got a lot of quite alternative different varieties that you're testing um different trees um maybe you could tell us a bit about this diversity and and some of the weird ones um that you're that you're testing oh yeah um actually the weird ones i'm, I'm i tend i tend not to keep them because i I first, first, I tend to keep the plants that I love. That's my first criteria. Because I, my first criteria is that I know I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna handle them with care if I love them. So the plants that I do not like that much, I have the tendency to get rid of them. It doesn't mean that I'm, not, I'm never gonna cultivate apples, but I'm not a big apple fan. So I, I tend not to, uh, to spend enough time with them. And uh, but um. I'm going to start with the first one. Um, it's probably my favorite uh, fruit tree, but also tree. Uh, it's pretty well known in the uh, agroforestry community, but uh, uh, in the general public, it's really not well known because I've uh, nested in, uh, in at, at my nursery. People really don't know the, the plant. So uh, um, the plant is, uh, the, the tree is uh, Morris, the Morris family. Uh, so you've got uh, Morris Alba, you've got Morris Nigra, you've got uh, Morris Rubra, you've got uh, all the the Morris from uh, Asian uh, Asian areas of so Thailand. You've got those from uh, from Pakistan. That's mulberry for uh, yes, it's mulberry. Clarifying. Yeah, ex- exactly. That's mulberry trees, and uh, it's an amazing tree because uh, in the past they used to uh, they used it for uh, uh, to feed animals, and actually the the animals were were coppicing and, and pruning the trees uh, because they lo- they love the leaves and the and the young shoots. But uh, what people really don't know is that uh, uh, the the fruit is quite amazing. And uh, actually, the tree and the leaves are also uh, very good for your health. So I find the tree to be uh, to be amazing, at, at least under under a climate. You were talking about um, uh, earlier, Etienne, the, uh, about the fact that we need to to cope with the uh, the late frost. But all, it's not only the late frost; is that uh, the um, the spring doesn't behave like in the past. Uh, this year, for example, in February we had like 15 degrees mid February, and then it went back to uh, to minus three, and then in March it went to uh, to 20 degrees Celsius, and then back to minus two. So it's all those differences. And uh, I think that the Morris is one of those trees that you can really cope with uh, late frost. And uh, I've been able to, to get a, a, a very good crop uh, even after those, uh, those uh, you know, late frost that we had in, uh, in March, April, and May. So whatever, it, it seems like you, you can do anything you want to the tree, it's still going to produce. So, uh, it's quite amazing. The fruit is uh, is amazing. So you can have uh, white fruits that that you can dry. Basically, uh, they're all from the the Morris Alba or hybrids family. Um, uh, the the fruits from uh, Niga I say is quite amazing as well because it's the perfect uh, mix between uh, acidity and and sugar, uh, which is not the case for Morris Alba. The 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 white mulberry um, tend to have fruits that get you really high in sugar but there is a trick is that if you eat it or if you collect it right a few a few days or one week before it uh, it really uh, uh, at maturity you're going to have a fruit that is uh, that also have that you know perfect balance 
and uh, and you've had, you have also the um, the varieties from uh, from Pakistan which produce fr- fruits that are very uh, very long. It can get to uh, f- fifteen centimeters fifteen wow. uh, centimeters long. But uh, I don't know yet if they uh, they will cope with, with they will cope with uh, uh, the minus uh, five six or eight uh, temperatures that we can get during the uh, uh, during the winter. So, uh, but there are solutions is that some uh, some um, people have um, have hybrid uh, hybridized uh, varieties between um, uh, Pakistan uh, and varieties from uh, uh, Europe or the US or even uh, Russia to mix them together and to uh, to have the the fruit the fruit production and also the ability to cope with the very low temperature. So. It's an ongoing uh, research uh, pro- uh, process, uh, and more. And the more I look, and the more we find, and uh, and the more I, you know, I get access to uh, to the network of uh, of uh, fruit uh, collectors that you know spend their lives, you know, traveling around the world to look for new varieties. I, I think at some point we're gonna get varieties, and uh, that that will cope with uh, with the, the with the low temperatures, which which are which are a problem, at least in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in South Belgium and also if you, if you get into the, the continental uh, areas. But uh, that's one example. But uh, it's, it's not that it's uh, an unusual tree, but uh, uh, people don't know about it, except if you, uh, in, you're into agroforestry or into food forest. So it's, 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 quite, it's quite an amazing tree. You actually started to answer uh, my next question. You alluded to some networks okay. of of uh, you know tree collectioners, or I, I can't remember the exact term. So, how do you source all these different varieties? Uh, mostly, um, actually, it's a, it's it's quite a nice story because um, to enter this network, it's like uh, it's like the dark net. You need to go into into places you don't know about, and it, I mean those people, they don't talk about uh, what they find. You, you you need to go and look for them. And at first, you need to have either uh, plans to exchange, or you need knowledge. If you don't have any, well, it's a problem. So what I did is I started to uh, to study, and then I started to buy plants. And uh, as soon as I was able to to buy a few uh, plants that had value. On, on, in, within the market and, and uh, the underground market. And then uh, over time, you start to gain uh, trust from those guys because they don't like to give away their little gems so, uh, so easily. So it takes, sometimes it takes years. Uh, for example, I've been, um, and I'm sure the guy, if he listens to the, the podcast, he, he, he will know I'm talking about him, is that sometimes it takes a few years to, to get access to plants. And I've been chasing some plants for two years now. But uh, over, time, wow. over time, you're going to get them if, you, uh, if you're nice to people, if you have not something back to, 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 to give them. And also, uh, one important thing within this uh, under, underground uh, network is trust. You, you cannot just take from people. You need to exchange. That's really important. So, um, yes, it, it takes time. It's, uh, it, it needs to, uh, you need to find the guys who have the varieties. Sometimes you don't find them right away. It's, uh, it's a lot of talking. Yeah, I remember I was looking for a variety, a specific variety. Um, uh, I think it was a hazelnut variety. And uh, 
So I asked that, a guy in, in the Netherlands and he said, well, I don't have it anymore, but ask the guy in Denmark. So I, I sent, a, I sent an, an email to the guy in Denmark and the guy in Denmark told me, I don't have it, I don't, I don't have it anymore. You have to uh, contact the guy in Poland. So uh, it, it actually it took me one day to get access to, uh, to the right variety in Poland. And it's always the same. So it takes a lot of time. And then uh, finally, when you have it, you need to make sure it's the correct one. So you need to plant it and you need to verify it's the true variety you've been reading about. So it's a very long process. It can take up to, uh, you know, five to 10 years to, uh, to, to make sure that one, you have the correct variety and two, that the variety is going to be successful and work under, under your climate. So yeah, it's a long process, but it's kind of fun. It sounds it sounds more like uh, detective work than than farming almost, you know. Uh, but that, that's yeah. what the beauty is: is that there's so many aspects to to you know working with plants, and that's a new one that I didn't know about. Yeah, and actually, it's it's a hard job to do because you can't do both. I mean, if if you do both, it means either that you have uh, money or you have time, or you have both. Well, you know, I was lucky enough to have money on the side, so I can spend my time. Uh, working on this and still, you know, uh, taking my time to uh, to build the system, you know, the, the producing system on the side. But uh, over time, you know, the, the job, you know, the uh, the amount of work I put into researching is going to decrease, and the amount of work I put into uh, the production uh, system is going to increase because at some point, I hope so, I'll be able to assess the fact that you know this variety or this species works. And this one doesn't work, and I'm gonna be happy with that. But in a way, some people say that in in the plant collection, well, I don't know if you say collector or collection is, a, I don't know the word, the exact word, but uh, they say that it never ends. It's like uh, you always want to find new plants and new gems. So probably my time, you know, researching is gonna decrease, but uh, I'm still gonna be involved in, uh, in in this searching and exchanging and test and testing. Yeah, it becomes an addiction. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tried not to. It's like um, uh, I'm not a stamp, you know, collector. You know, at some point, you, uh, at the moment, I'm I'm testing a lot of varieties in in in, uh, in different species. Uh, about 120 varieties of of uh, figs, about uh, 80 varieties of khakis, about 30 varieties mm -hmm. of nashi. But at some point, I'm just gonna keep maybe uh, five to ten of each variety. And you have to do it for, uh, you know, with, uh, with a purpose in mind. It's not just, you know, collecting the plants because uh, at some point you need to, uh, to tell yourself, uh, do, I, do I have the use of having, you know, varieties that, uh, that will produce over a long period of time? If it helps your production system, it's fine. You can, you can play with the fact that, you know, varieties can produce in, uh, in mid-July or end of July or early August. If you don't have the time to uh, to take all the fruits at the same time, for example, because you're small or, or you don't have a lot of labor to, to, to work, uh, I mean, a, a lot of manpower to work with you. Uh, and if you're bigger, then you're gonna probably going to focus on uh, one variety that is going to produce like hell and then uh, and that are going to produce uh, everything at the same time. It depends on, on, uh, on your strategy. But yes, yes, it's going to be uh, probably indefinite, the, uh, the amount of, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. But uh, yeah, at some point, I'll I, I have to stop because it's too much work. Because uh, 
What I do for now is uh, is that during the day I work at the nursery uh, or at, uh, you know within the field, and uh, and and at night that's uh, I, usually after the kids are asleep is is when I start looking for uh, varieties. But I usually do it in the winter when uh, when I have less work. Before we move on to the orchard and and also to the nursery, I wanted to understand to get a sense of a timeline. Um, once you find a variety. Uh, presumably, sometimes you have to wait for the first fruit production. So that could take many years before you're able to see, like, this is going to work or not. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to test everything. So uh, it's, for example, I'm going to just going to talk about two thick varieties, right? Uh, one variety is quite well known in, uh, in France, but also uh, among, you know, thick uh, collectors, collectionists. Uh, it's the um, it's the Ronde de Bordeaux, which is quite uh, quite famous. It's it, it's even uh, so famous that in uh, within the uh, the network we call it RDB. And so it's uh, you have to know it, but it's called RDB. And Ronde de Bordeaux is a is a is a one time you know it's a one cropper per year, so it's going to produce on the on the wood of the year. So uh, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, fig tree because it's probably the earliest uh, ripening fig that you can find uh, among all varieties. So it's really interesting. But the fig has issues under very humid and uh, rainy climates, especially when the fig uh, starts to ripen. It's that the the fig uh, has a tendency uh, tendency to uh, to split. Which is a problem because if it splits, it's gonna, it's not going to mature properly, and uh, and then it's useless. So it means that it's not a it's not a candidate for a, a production system in a temperate climate. But um, when I entered the network uh, and I I started to find out more about fig trees, uh, there was a, another variety that people talked about, and that was a variety I've never heard about. Uh, uh, it's uh, its name is uh, Michurin number ten. So it's uh, the story behind it is quite it's quite nice. It's uh, it's a lady in the the eighties in Bulgaria. It, I, I've heard that she was a she uh, she was a scientist and um, she collected fifty varieties from around uh, her city, which uh, which is called Michurin. In Bulgaria, and uh, she selected 50 varieties, named them from one to 50, and she kept uh, the number 10 because uh, it was uh, the only fig that resisted uh, to a very harsh uh, cold spell they had in the uh, in the 80s, and all the other plants were were got you know uh, got killed to the ground. It doesn't mean that they all died, but they were killed to the ground. And Michurin was the only one who uh, stayed up and and uh, and well and healthy and didn't you know, freeze. And also uh, another reason why she selected the variety is that because she uh, she uh, she she could see that it was really a, a, a very early ripening fig. And the really uh, the advantage of this fig uh, for our rainy uh, climate because you know. Most most years now we uh, we tend to have uh, dry spells, right? But uh, uh, still in uh, in September, October, it can start to rain again, and that was the case uh, this year again. And uh, Michurin number ten didn't split at all, so it means that it takes hmm. you know three or four years to really assess a variety. I mean, I kind of knew about uh, Ronde de Bordeaux, which was really in uh, 
already in, in, in the lit literature that it was already described as uh, as having the potential to split if it rains in uh, September, but it doesn't happen for for uh, Michelin. So uh, it's uh, it's the it's an amazing one for uh, for uh, a temperate climate and especially colder climates because it's gonna this year it started to ripen on the twenty twenty sixth of uh, of August, which is uh, quite good, knowing that fig trees are gonna gain. Uh, one, two, and, and sometimes three weeks in maturity in terms of early uh, ripening uh, over time uh, as they get older. So a, a 10 years old fig tree can produce a fix uh, probably uh, uh, two weeks earlier. So it's kind of interesting to know is that don't get rid of, uh, of fig trees if they're uh, if they seem not to uh, to be producing well at first, try them for a few years and then assess and then uh, get rid of them if you uh, find out that it doesn't work. But uh, that's kind of interesting. It seems that uh, we have a huge debt to pay to all these amateur collectors. Yeah, and we don't know about them. It's like... Uh, exactly. Yeah. It, 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 but over time, it's... Uh, over time, it you know people are gonna get access to it because in the end it, it always happens. So uh, it's uh, mm. they kind of they, they like to protect them, but at some point it's gonna be uh, it, there's gonna be a leak, and then some guys like me are gonna start selling them. But uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, you know those guys they spend uh, they spend their vacations. They spend they they go on vacation. Just to find fix, for example, I know some people will go to Spain just to find fix. It's it's kind of it's kind of crazy, but that's what they do. It's like they post photos of their holidays. You know, some people are gonna post photos on uh, of them on the beach, but what they do is that they post photos of their hands opening figs, figs and eating them. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of cool. But it it seems that um, it would be challenging for a farmer to be doing this work, although necessary. Um, especially in all the different contexts, you know, you're adapting them to your context, but you know, three, four hundred kilometers away, it'll be a, or even less, it will be another context. It might need other selective work. Yeah. So it seems difficult that um, a farmer would be able to integrate that into his work. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, he would need to work with someone from his uh, area. I mean, he would need to find a guy like me who would do, uh, who's doing the same kind of work and research. But you know, I I can kind of uh, I I don't have all the answers, but uh, I I know even you know three three hundred kilometers away, I could suggest some uh, some varieties that have the potential mm. to uh, to do well. But of course, you know, in a way, what's good as well is that I can also advise people which one not to buy, which is important because it happens so so often that people end up with plants that are not adapted to the to their uh, to their climate. So. It's an advice, uh, an advice at least I, I can give to them is uh, not to buy plants that are not going to work uh, uh, under the, the climate. Something that we haven't clarified uh, before is how many years have you been planting these trees? So how, how, how long has, have your trials been going for now? Uh, it's, it's been going for um, three and a half years. Yeah. Okay. Basically four so yes it's it's still very uh it's still very young so uh it, it's it's funny because people visit even even you know uh, people from universities and uh, they come to me and say well i would like to replicate replicate your system and i told them well don't man you know 
it's way too soon. Uh, it's not a it's not a recipe. Uh, I, I'm trying stuff, and uh, and over time, maybe in uh, in five to ten years, we're gonna start, you know, having more information uh, about the system and uh, about the plants. But it's uh, it's way too soon. So uh, yeah, four years is is still very uh, it's it's still very little, uh, you know, when you compare to uh, to life expectancies of uh, of shrubs and trees. So uh, yeah, it's still uh, a very beginning. Uh, as a second phase of the of this interview, we really wanted to know a bit more about um, the regenerative fruit orchard that you are setting up and and you know experimenting with and and some of the techniques that you're trying out there. So to start off with, um, maybe you could tell us a bit about some of the plants that you've planted in this orchard. That um, is it the same plants that you're experimenting with for the variety selection, or is it some other plants? Actually, at the moment, I'm testing a lot more than I'm uh, than than I'm gonna test in the future. Um, when I planted four years ago, um, I didn't know enough, but now I have a, a a much clearer view about what I want to plant. It's not that I know everything. Um, I still need to learn a, a lot about the the plants that I believe to have a potential, but uh, I know. You know, it's been four years now, and and I had the time to uh, to analyze on on uh, you know how the how the plants work. So at the moment, I'm testing around um, hundred species and about uh, a thousand varieties. Uh, I'm gonna spend a lot of time testing more uh, because you know I planted about one hectare uh, four years ago, but uh, some do not work. Uh, I'm gonna need to get rid of them, and I'm gonna change with varieties that have a lot of a lot more potential. Uh, so I've planted uh, basically rows of uh, of trees and a couple of layers uh, at ground level. I've uh, I've focused on plants that are very uh, easy to multiply, and uh, I've basically uh, focused on one because it grows like uh, like uh, really crazy. So it's really a plant that is adapted to uh, to uh, to our climate and to our soil. Is uh, is comfrey. Comfrey uh, yeah. work really well at ground level for me. So uh, I could try other plants, but uh, this one is so easy to uh, multiply. Uh, it's very cheap. Um, if you if you want to buy comfrey, uh, especially the bucking uh, fourteen that is quite uh, well known within uh, the plant. Uh, plant amateurs is uh it's a comfrey that do not seed itself or, or do not spread it means that if you plant it it's going to behave and stay right where it is uh for for its uh life course so it's um and it and it's also a plant that you can chop uh one or two times a year and uh and worms they do they do love it and uh it has a, a big uh, tap root that it can go and uh and go deep into the soil and uh, and uh, and take minerals and make it available uh, um, to the plants uh, nearby. So it's uh, it's really an, an interesting plant as a as a not a ground cover but a, at ground level. Um, and then I've been using a lot of uh, different uh, shrubs that produce fruits. All the well known, but uh, there is one uh, that I really like because it's really. Uh, it's, it's really producing a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of young shoots and shoots and also uh, a lot of fruits. Is the, the Josta berry? 
I don't know. Uh, I don't know the, the name. I think it's Ribes uh, Nidi Grolaria in uh, in Latin. It's a mix of uh, one current with black uh, black currents, and it's really um, it's really producing uh, really well. And it's also very easy to um, to multiply. You just need to take uh, cuttings during the winter, and then you need to uh, to actually put the cutting into the ground, and it's going to create create. Uh, a new plant, and that's really one one thing I focus on as uh, as well is that when you start a project, you can invest a lot of money in plants. For example, the comfrey. If you had to buy, let's say, two thousand comfreys to uh, to cover all all your tree lines, uh, you will end up uh, paying a lot of money for that, and 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 it's yeah. not you're not going to make uh, money from it. it. It's a support uh, a support plant. But uh, if you uh, start your own little nursery uh, with one country that is two years old, you can divide the roots and make 200 plants. So it means that it's very easy to multiply if you do it yourself. Of course, it's, you're going to need a, a bit of time to, uh, to, to let the plant settle. But uh, it means that over time, if you plant 20 plants, you could, you could do uh, 4,000 plants within two years. So, uh, mm. so it's a strategy for people who do not have the money but have a bit of time to uh, to, to to multiply plants and uh, for not to uh, in a non-expensive uh, way. Um, so that would be a second plan I've been playing uh, with. But uh, uh, for the top layers, you know, those are really the plants that are going to produce produce the fruits itself. Um, and I've been playing with a lot of different species and varieties, but uh, obviously the ones that I believe I'm going to keep in the future, I can talk a, a little bit about, about them. Uh, first, it's going to be uh, mulberry because it's an amazing tree. Uh, you can, do, you can uh, use the fruit to make syrup uh, for, you have different use, uh, uses for it. Um, the second is going to be uh, Amenonchea nifolia. It's, uh, I think it's a service, uh, service berry or service tree. It, it it has um it produces uh, fruits that are the size of a of um of a blueberry, but I find the taste to be uh, more interesting because it has um it's like a woody flavor, and also it's a it's a shrub that can become a, a big tree if you let it go. But the, it's a shrub that uh, it's, it is more adapt adaptable to uh, uh, many type of soils, uh, whereas uh, you know. Uh, uh, blueberries they need a very specific type of soil to uh, to uh, to produce and even to survive to survive so i would say uh, a melanchier and nifolia is the second one um i'm, I'm going to talk about the third one which is uh, really a discovery for me is uh is um i don't know the name in uh in english uh, people would have to find out find it out but it's cornus mass and it's um it's a it's a tree that you can find uh, in the wild, at least in a temperate climate in uh, in Europe, um, that produces red uh, red flesh uh, fruits. But the the stone is very big compared to the flesh, so it's always been a problem because it means that you're gonna produce fruits that have a, that have a that has a that have a ratio that is not really good. It means you're not gonna make money with that. But uh, uh, Eastern countries like Poland and also Ukraine and Russia, they've been uh, uh, selecting varieties for the last 20 years. And now you've got uh, varieties that produce huge amount of flesh. So it's really interesting. 
the fruit is red and when the fruit is ripe it, it falls on the ground and you can uh, you can uh, you know transform the fruit uh, making wine syrups uh, jams and also vinegar in in the eastern countries there there are so many recipes for uh, for uh, for the fruit and also there there are new varieties that are yellow which is interesting because the birds are really not in, not interested in in them and also i find it to have uh, a better taste than the red ones so it means that the yellow ones could be eaten fresh and maybe sold uh, locally but i uh, would have i would have to find this out um I'm going to talk as well about nashi. Nashi uh, is the uh, is the uh, Jap- uh, Japanese pear. It's uh, it's from the mm-hmm. family of pears, but uh, it has it has a different um, taste than uh, than pears. It's it's similar, but uh, it has the advantage the advantage of not having the uh, uh, the problems that pears have in uh, in Europe with the uh, uh, you know pears can. Get can get really uh, can get really sick, which is a, an issue. But nashi do not seem to have the the problem for now. And uh, you know, when I tried uh, five or six years ago the first nashi I, I tasted in a shop, that was I didn't find it to be uh, interesting. But uh, today the, there are loads of varieties, especially from Japan and uh, from South Korea, and the taste is really good. I was really surprised. So um, that's a tree uh, I'm gonna add to uh, to the mix. Um, there's there are quite a few others. Oh yeah, I forgot one, um, and that's one I uh, haven't tested. Uh, I have I, I haven't had the chance to uh, to test it properly because uh, I've been looking for a specific uh, subspecies for for the last two or three years. But um, it's the um, uh, elderberry. Elderberry, I I think is a, has a huge potential, especially during those. Uh, Crisis, uh, crisis times, uh, and the and uh, and the virus uh, attacking our, uh, our our health, and it's uh, it has so many uh, uh, nutritional compounds, and uh, it's been studied a lot in at the Missouri uh, University. So that's where I find a lot of information, and uh, there's a, a, mm. a grower there that has been uh, selecting and producing uh, elderberry for the last thirty years. And it's the uh, it's not the elderberry that that we can, that we find in Europe, which is the uh, Sambucus nigra. It's the Sambucus canadensis, and it's it, it, mm-hmm. it's a quite amazing uh, tree. It's uh, it's heavily pro- it produces a lot, uh, and it's also it's also much easier to manage. It's that the uh, Sambucus nigra, the uh, the black elderberry that we have that we have over over here. Cannot cannot be pruned very easily. It still goes. It it has a structure and that is not easy to manage. And uh, the canadensis is uh, in a way not all uh, sub, uh, varieties can be managed like this. But it's the same as the fig tree I was talking about earlier. Is that every year you can you know cut it to the ground, which means that it's very easy to manage. It is that over time, after a few years, you're gonna have. Uh, Really uh, uh, strong shoots that are going to produce on uh, on uh, on the the years on the years shoots, which is interesting. It means that you can plant. Um, you don't have to space them uh, uh, a lot. You can uh, you can plant them uh, quite densely. 
So it's it's an interesting one, and you can do obviously uh, syrups uh, for the winter, and you can mix them with plants that have uh, medicinal compounds in in, in, in them. So uh, that's one I'm going to experiment a, a lot. You know, I was talking about earlier the time it, it takes to find uh, species, and that's been I've been chasing uh, Canadensis uh, species for the last six months, and and now I'm in touch, and hopefully it's going to go through. With the nursery in uh, in uh, in British Columbia and in Canada, where there is a, a grower over there, and I'm, I hope I'm going to get uh, cuttings this winter, and uh, and will be able to multiply them. So those are kind of the trees that that I like that and I that that I believe have uh, have potential. It's really interesting to hear how the knowledge that you're acquiring through your nursery work and through your, you know, analyzing the species, all this diversity of species in your selection work, all this knowledge is feeding into your understanding of how to set up an orchard, right? You can feel it in, in, in the, the, the talk that you're giving right now. And um, so that's really fascinating for me. And it shows how technical we can get and how, how that understanding trees so technically can really benefit knowing how to place them into a system and how to use them. Um, I wanted to ask a bit more about the biomass trees that you mentioned earlier on. Or you, you, I'm, not, not, I'm not sure necessarily they're trees, but you talked about producing your own biomass on the site. So maybe that's something that we could, uh, you could elaborate on. What's your strategy to produce biomass? Yeah, uh, obviously I'm a, I've, been, uh, I've been really interested also in cover crops. So, uh... So the, the the first thing we uh, we did before before planting is uh, we sowed um, a, a mix of uh, of dactylis, uh, glomerata, which is I think uh, orchard orchard grass in in English, and also uh, meticago sativa, the alfalfa. Uh, mm -hmm. I haven't I haven't experimented anything else for now because it's really working well. So uh, the alfalfa is quite amazing. We had uh, three years of uh, of dry spells, obviously, like many people, I mean, many areas in the world, and the alfalfa really did cope with the uh, with the, uh, the 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 dryness that we experienced uh, during the last three years. So uh, I I don't plan to change, and uh, you know I think we can talk uh, also about uh, the fact that we need we need uh, you know as uh, experimental farmers we need more science to be put into. Uh, to put uh, mm -hmm. in, into our fields. But uh, I, I read a, a while ago that the alfalfa had an interesting, uh, it was quite complementary to, uh, to trees. That if you sow an alfalfa before you implant an orchard, it means that uh, when you plant the tree, uh, the tree is going to have a tendency to go, in, to go deeper into the ground because the alfalfa is taking all you know taking up all the space uh, available on the site so i think that's kind of a, the a strategy that we uh, are all looking for when we uh, want to set up a system like this is to find you know solutions that are, are that are really interesting and that are going to fix problems that we uh, that that we encounter right so um for sure. you know mm -hmm. so afafa has been uh, has been quite amazing i'm going to i'm going to try other mixes but uh, i need more equipment and uh, i just uh, I, I don't have the ability to uh, to sow uh, mechanically at the moment so uh, so i'm i'm quite happy with it at the moment so in between the tree lines we obviously uh, you know use alfalfa as a mulch so we we chop it uh, one two three or four times a year to 
uh, two cuts are left uh, in the, uh, are left there just to feed the alfalfa, and two cuts uh, are merged on the on the three rows. Um, so that's what we use as uh, as cover crops for fertility. But we also use trees, obviously. Uh, so I talked about uh, the comfrey. Um, I, I use some uh, Eleagnus uh, species. Um, I don't know names in English, but Multiflora, Flora Umbellata. Uh, Multiflora, mm-hmm. it's called the Gumi. Uh, it's interesting because it's uh, fixed. It, it fixes its own uh, nitrogen, so it's uh, it's quite uh, it's quite dynamic when you have to implant the system from uh, from scratch. And for um, for top uh, the top strata for the top layers, um, I I've experimented with ten different varieties, but the ones that do really work uh, well um, is the uh, Arnus Cordata, uh, the Italian older, uh, mm-hmm. the Polonia Tomentosa, which is quite popular within the uh, aquaforestry network. Uh, there is uh, the Salix Alba, which is uh, the willow, and also the uh, the the white poplar, and uh, I could find. You know, I, I did the same kind of work with uh, with a friend from uh, from the networkers uh, that I did for fruit trees, researching fruit trees. Is that you can also try to find um, uh, support species that have uh, really uh, uh, that behave really uh, really well in, within your climate by researching uh, uh, varieties or sub varieties or new creations by uh, by uh, research centers that. Are going to grow twice, uh, twice uh, faster. For example, so uh, mm-hmm. for the for the poplar, you you get uh, breeders in the, in the UK, for example, who uh, who created the, what I call the poplars on steroids. It means that they, they grow so fast that uh, it's quite uh, amazing to witness the difference between uh, a, um, a local poplar and the, and the poplar that they, uh, that were imported from the UK. It's like a, Twice, uh, twice, twice the speed. Just to clarify, these support species are on your tree line, or these biomass-producing species, right? They're on your tree line, and you're going to be so mixed with your with your fruit trees yeah. and the different berries that you talked about. Yeah, and then you're going to be pruning them. Yeah. to produce biomass. Yeah, right? exactly. It's it's. I need to learn a lot more about this, right? Because the uh, the con- okay. that the conditions. Uh, you know the, the the work, for example, of uh, of Ernst Scotch in, in in Brazil. He's 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 got he's got his own climate, right? And and the the, the conditions are not the same within Europe. Um, and uh, so I need to learn a lot more about this. It's uh, for now. I've planting I've planted those trees every uh, two or three meters, but it might be too much or it might be too little uh, when you start. I don't have a uh, I don't have an answer, so that's really experimental. It, it could mean that over time, I'm uh, you know those uh, those support uh, trees that are planted every two meters. I'm just gonna keep uh, one out of uh, three or four. Um, mm-hmm. I, I need I need numbers on on, on the carbon that, that you know they uh, they produce when they uh, when they're young and when they are quite mature. And uh, that's really something that uh, we'd like uh, scientists and people to work on uh, and, and to help us uh, uh, to help us out with because it's uh, we don't have uh, you know the, the proper answers at the moment at the moment. So yes, they are they are planted on the on the tree lines. Yes, yeah, it's in the very early stages in Europe. Um, all these techniques. Yes, but um, how would you plan on then managing um, the material that you've pruned uh, or the biomass that you've pruned from the trees? 
Yeah, that's that's also a question. Um, uh, are, <laughs> are, 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 are we going to, you know, use a, tr a shredder? Well, we we don't have a a definite a definitive strategy. Um, at the moment, we would do probably like uh, everyone else do is that we would use a, a wood chipper, uh, a wood chipper, either uh, a wood chipper that would uh, that would place on a two wheeler. Or, or or separate machine that could that would be an option, uh, but uh, in the future and, uh, and and I've been talking with you guys, it would be also a good idea to uh, to uh, to prune the branches and then maybe to uh, to uh, to shred the um, for example the alfalfa and the and the branches at the same time and put them on the on the lines on the fruit lines. It it could be a strategy, but I I don't have enough knowledge. I don't know even uh, if uh, those tools exist for two wheelers. Uh, I would need to learn a lot more, and and I guess over time, and and the more we exchange information within, you know, the network of people who are starting this kind of project, well, it's going to be possible, and uh, yeah, but it's going to need a, uh, we're going to need a, uh, I need more information to uh, to be able to to choose the right strategy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That that will be an interesting one because that was definitely a, a recurring question for us at Mazzy Farm, and and you know it still is. Is uh, it takes a lot of energy, both human and petrol, to be you know passing everything um, in the wood chipper. So it's a really interesting challenge. I did want to ask. Uh, you mentioned you know mulching the lines with uh, alfalfa. Is that the only thing you do for weed suppression? And generally, how is that going? Are you managing to to deal with weeds? Ah, weeds. Um, I've I've not I've not experimented a lot with weed controls. I've I've, I've had issues. Um, so uh, we tend to uh, we tend to use different uh, strategies. Mulching would be a, an interesting one, but usually we don't have access to mulch right away. I mean, we we could probably uh, uh, we we could probably work with gardeners uh, around the uh, the area for. Having wood chips, but uh, it's it's also a problem because uh, you believe sometimes you believe you're going to do something good and it turns out to be bad. Is that uh, wood chips are interesting, of of course, but uh, when the soil is not uh, ready to cope with wood chips, you you have to ten a tendency to bring a lot of material from uh, from the outside, and then you're going to run into issues. And uh, I'm not sure that you know placing like 30 centimeters of wood chips on a heavy clay soil is a is a good idea. But uh, you learn by uh, by doing. But uh, I think the the best strategy is um, uh, to for weed control is to prepare your fruit lines in in the perfect manner. And over time, after four years, I've developed a few strategies uh, to make sure that weeds are kept under control. So first, what we use is a machine to get rid of the grasses because the grasses are really the enemy of uh, of the trees. Not not the trees, not of a grown up tree, but the, of a young seedling. Uh, they uh, cannot cope with the competition uh, in terms of water and uh, nutrients. And so right after what we do is either we place a mulch or we place a mulch and we plant the plants. Uh, for example, comfrey, which was a problem at the beginning, we didn't have enough. So we planted a few, but now as we have uh, about a thousand comfrey that we've planted, it means that we could uh, multiply them and make 200,000 uh, uh, comfries. So 
no now the 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 weed pressure is not going to be as uh, as big as when we started with nothing so um i would first uh weed the line and then place a mulch and then right right away uh plant the the perfect plants for for your area it doesn't mean comfrey is going to work for everyone right uh, I know people in uh, you know in, in other places in Europe where comfrey doesn't grow well, but you need to find your plant that's going to grow well uh, grow well under your climate and and going to grow fast enough to compete with the grasses. And um, so it's a, it's kind of a mixed strategy. You cannot do one thing; you have to do everything at the same time, and you have to plant it in advance. That's how you can achieve, you know, uh, because if you don't do that your plants are going to suffer. And especially if you have a few dry spells, like we had for the last three years, you're going to lose a lot of uh, growth and uh, you're going to lose time and then uh, you're going to lose money. And I'm sure that's where, um, you know, your your high level of technicity on, on different plants is going to come in handy and finding, you know, right combinations. And it's great that you've already found that with, with Comfrey. Um, and the other thing I, I was wondering is how do you go about uh, in terms of fertilization? Uh, maybe from just when you prepare the lines and plant the trees and how that works out on the on the following years? Well, um, like everyone, I, I, I did a soil test at the, at the very beginning, but uh, it's kind of hard for, it was kind of hard for me because I don't have the knowledge to, uh, to, to understand, you know, what's going on. So, after, you know, when I first started, I didn't know, I didn't know much, but uh, now over time and obviously reading stuff and uh, learning more and listening to podcasts and, uh, and uh, reading uh, science, you know, uh, science uh, literature, you, you, you get to learn more about uh, what you saw and need. But uh, of course, what I did is uh, uh, kind of, the, uh, you know, balance the pH at first. So uh, I used uh, dolomite. Uh, and also a, a basalt powder um, to 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 balance the nutrients and to make the pH right for the for the fruit trees. But my my uh, and that's the question I I have is that I, am I and are we going to be able to uh, to balance uh, uh, the quality of the soil and 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 make sure that uh, uh, our plants and our fruit trees have all the proper nutrients. Uh, to to produce enough in the future, or are we going to have to import from outside? Do we have to add animals, for example? It's a, it's also a debate uh, among the uh, uh, agroforestry passionate. Is that uh, is the animal necessary, or is the animal taking nutrients for the, from the system? For example, the alfalfa that I grow. Uh, that is going to be eaten by uh, by the animal and not available for to fatten the trees. Um, is it a good strategy? Well, I don't have any uh, any proper answer, but uh, uh, hopefully um, I'm going to learn over time and from people from uh, from uh, you know helping and, and uh, who have the desire to, uh, to 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 help me and and finding new ways to to, to fix this. Yeah, but uh, I have more questions than I have answers. Welcome to the club. <laughs> send, send, send your questions to us then, because, you know, that's the whole point of the podcast is um, the endless number of questions that came out of, of our experience. Um, I did want to ask, I mean, we've talked about uh, so many different varieties uh, in the last hour, and it kind of makes me think, you know, 
what would be your optimum level of diversity you know once you've tested out you found the right varieties and you have your kind of cruising speed ah that's that's a good question i w- I, w- I would imagine um maximum one or two layers of fruit trees per line because i i, I find it to be uh, very difficult to uh, to to play with a uh, hundred species and and thousands of varieties so we need to be reasonable but uh, we need to be smart and use the the proper plant at the at the right space at the right space so i would probably um I know that uh, it has advantages to plant and to diversify on the same line, you know, for uh, for biodiversity and to make sure that uh, pathogens do not attack your fruit trees uh, so easily. But I I also find it so complicated to manage. It means that we don't have the we don't have the proper tools to uh, you know to go and and pick up fruits uh, that are so diverse on on lines of trees. So. I think in the future I'm going to focus on uh, one line. It's probably going to be one species at the upper level and one species at the lower level. And then on the next line we may uh, change, or every uh, you know four or five lines we may change depending on our strategy and uh, and market strategy. But um, I would probably limit to one or two fruit trees. For example, it could be. You know, it's. I still have to learn about it, but it could be uh, uh, khaki as upper level, and then it could be uh, cornus mass uh, in between if it works. But um, you need to have the proper pruning strategy. But the more I learn, the more I imagine the future of uh, uh, of the uh, regenerative uh, fruit uh, fruit orcharding. Is that over time? It's just your. You just need to. You just have to imagine what's possible. And uh, the more I learn, the more I imagine what I can do. But uh, it, it's still it's still too early. I'm gonna stand. Um, so the first phase was to uh, to to uh, really experiment. The second phase is the other piece of land I've got, which is gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna be more reasonable, and I'm gonna I'm gonna plant less species and less varieties. And then after that, when I learn more from that second experience. I will be able to start, you know, a real production pro, uh, project, but that's going to be uh, that's going to be next. And you talked about the challenges in terms of management, but then there's also the challenges of selling diversity and you know to a market, especially if you have a lot of niche products. So is it the fact that you're close to Brussels, which means that you can really have some kind of odd and weird fruits and and not take a risk there, or um, how are you how are you going to deal with that? Uh, I think I'm, I'm. I don't plan to uh, to sell fruits uh, directly uh, to the people without transformation. I think if you want to be successful, you need to transform. So my strategy, and uh, right away, and uh, and I've learned it from the very beginning, is that it's hard to make uh, decent money doing a small small scale project and selling fruits without uh, transformation. So I'm gonna definitely uh, uh, focus on uh, on transforming uh, the fruits that I produce. Yeah. So I'm I'm not I'm not gonna sell the fruits like they are um, uh, to the local people, especially the fruits that are not well known, because you know it's a long process to uh, to uh, to uh, to make them adapt uh, adopt a new uh, a new kind of tr- uh, a fruit tree. But people are getting more and more curious. But uh, 
my strategy is, is def definitely to, uh, to, to, to go down the uh, transformation route is that I don't want to sell directly like the fruit like it is, but I, I would like to create mixes and uh, with a focus on, uh, on, on, on the medicinal aspect of, uh, of the mix. So uh, one, one example would be uh, to take um, aronia fruits, uh, berries, and to mix them with elderberries, which is something, something that people know already, they, they know about the taste, and uh, to mix them uh, as well with uh, aromatics that also have some uh, medicinal properties. So that would be the kind of strategy that, that I would use to, to sell my products. And also, I, I will not get into a, a competition with a khaki producers from, uh, uh, from Spain anywhere. So I, I, would need, I would need to be smarter if I want to, uh, to make a, a living from it. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, so, Pierre, just, you know, slowly um, taking the interview to an end, um, I would love to know um, what were some of the main challenges that you experienced? Maybe we can just focus on, on the orchard side or I don't know, I'll let you kind of interpret this however you want. But what were some of the main challenges that you met since you started the project there? Yeah. Um, yeah, quite a few, but, um, first of all, it's, uh, obviously it's the kind of, uh, the lack of knowledge, uh, when you start, you don't have, uh, access to information. You're not part of a network yet. Um, you don't, you don't know where to look for information. So that's kind of difficult that, uh, when, when you start a project. So uh, I would say, uh, probably the number one, um, the, um, the number two, I would say as well, um, the right tools and for the right task is that sometimes we don't know which tools we, uh, we need and uh, we usually end up buying you know, equipment that we don't need or, or we find useless because uh, we, uh, we realize they, uh, they don't serve the, pur uh, the purpose and our strategy. So uh, that would be the second problem because you, spend, you would end up spending unnecessary money uh, on the on the on the wrong tools, um, so that would be the second, and also the third one. Uh, but it's probably the same from uh, from for for everyone in the world is uh, it's uh, regulations. Um, you spend so much time trying to fit inside uh, inside a system, uh, and 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 it takes sometimes years to uh, to find solutions because you. Uh, well, especially when you are creating new things and experimenting, you uh, you're gonna hit hit walls in store in, in terms of uh, local regulations, uh, state regulations, mm. or regional regulations. So it's really uh, sometimes it's you, you can get depressed because you believe what you do is uh, is is interesting and it's gonna add value to society, but uh, but they don't see it the same way because uh, you know you know how states are. And how laws and regulations are. So yeah, basically those three. I would add um, the, um, the challenges. <laughs> I would add the neighbors. Don't even if you're big, don't underestimate your your neighbors uh, in a good way and in a bad way. It means if you yeah. don't communicate well from the start, you can lose as much energy as you do for you know fighting. Uh, laws and, uh, and and coping with regulations. So I would say, c 
communicate with your neighbors and and uh, talk to them because they can if they be, if they become ambassadors of your project then the the, the local authorities are going to follow and this uh, and the state will never know you even if you do something that is not uh, that is uh, borderline illegal so focus on the on neighbors first yeah bring them fruit baskets yeah exactly. whenever possible yes <laughs> yes Well, I think I can personally definitely relate to some of those and some of the challenges you've shared here as well um, have also been brought up by other guests that we have interviewed. So we're starting to see some patterns coming out, which is very interesting. And to finish off the final question, as an agroforestry practitioner, what would you like to hear on the podcast? What would you like us to ask our next guests? Um... I would like to have more technical data. So if you could bring experts or guests that, you know, that could, that could provide uh, experiences or, or, or scientific knowledge that, you know, that would help in, in, in that would help our, you know, what, in what we're trying to achieve, uh, mm-hmm. especially complex systems uh, to produce food with, uh, with self-sufficiency in biomass. You know, that's what, uh, mm-hmm. that was, that's what I would like to ask your next, uh, next guest. Awesome. And we're definitely trying to um, interview, we will be trying to interview um, um, people with that technical knowledge, uh, also people working in academia on these issues and that are really, you know, experimenting and and bringing out data as well as practitioners. So awesome. Um, Yeah, this was really, really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and the, 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 um, the whole adventure that you've been on since you started your farm. And uh, it was really nice to, to have you on the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Please feel free to suggest anyone that we could interview or suggest questions, feedback, or comments. You'll find all the relevant links uh, just below the episode, and you can reach us through our website or through our social media.